Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by Ninja Mountain Bike Performance. To find mountain bike skills clinics in your area, go to ridelikeaninja.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to talk about the roots of mountain biking and also some of the branches, all the different styles of mountain biking that are around today. So this is going to be a bit of a history lesson, but we're going to try to make it really interesting because it's mountain bikes. How could it not be interesting? A lot of people think that mountain biking started, you know, around the 70s or 80s back in California, but there's actually evidence of people riding bikes off-road long before that. One of the first mentions that I found was from 1891, where the Swiss Army actually set up a bicycle regiment and they used bikes for transportation through the mountains and stuff. So Swiss Army is not just about knives. They're also about bikes, which is pretty cool. And then also in the 1890s here in the U.S., there was actually a regiment of African-American soldiers known as the Buffalo Soldiers that rode bikes off-road because there really weren't any roads from Missoula, Montana to Yellowstone. Greg, can you tell us a little bit more about the Buffalo Soldiers? Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating story worth reading up more on if you never read it before. But, you know, the army was testing ways to move troops and supplies. And at that point in time, they're like, well, we should give the bicycle a shot. But I don't think it ever caught on, you know, primarily with the advent of the automobile, like right around that time. Uh, Henry Ford came on the scene, like, I think it was 1899, possibly, that the Ford Motor Company started up. But right in that zone, I mean, you know, the first prototype cars had already been created, but wide adoption happened in the early 1900s. So missed its chance, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, they were able to cover a lot of distance and not it didn't take them too long. And they also were loaded down with a ton of supplies and stuff. So really impressive stuff for sure. Also, you know, early on in like the 40s and 50s, cycle cross was pretty popular among road riders looking for something to do in the off season. And the first national cyclocross championships were held in 1950. And for those who don't know, most people probably do, but cyclocross is basically riding road bikes off road. You know, they had sort of fatter, knobbier tires that they would put on the bikes, but still it was biking off road, though not necessarily mountain biking. And around this time too, John Finley Scott in the 1950s, 1953, I think, was developing a bike that was pretty similar to a mountain bike. And so, you know, you're seeing it, there wasn't like one thing where somebody was just like, I'm going to start riding my bike off road. And, you know, they kind of launched this whole thing. A lot of people were playing around with it, trying different things. So it's not, it's not super clear about exactly when this all started, but the sort of generally accepted history of the mountain bike says that mountain biking was born in like the 1970s. And at that time there were actually 
at least three different groups who have sort of a claim to be the first to start mountain biking. Uh, there was a guy in England named Jeff Apps that built a bike with two inch wide tires, 650B diameter actually. So the 27.5 wheel size that we're using today, but he built this bike in 1979 so that he could ride in sort of the muddy conditions that he found around England. And there were riders in Crested Butte, Colorado that were modifying bikes to get around town. And, you know, at that time, I'm imagining, I don't, I don't have a lot of information, but I'm imagining that the roads weren't paved. You know, there's rough conditions there, snows a lot. And so mountain bikes would be a good way to get around. Greg, you know a little bit about the Crested Butte mountain bike history. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, people like Mike Rust were involved in the scene in Crested Butte at that time. And a great movie for some more information on this. Um, it's primarily about Mike Rust's disappearance, but it also has some fascinating mountain bike history, uh, is The Rider and the Wolf. So definitely, definitely check that out. And if you want more information on sort of the parallel development in the UK at that point in time, you should definitely watch the movie called quote mountain biking, the untold British story End quote. <laughs> uh, it was just released in 2016 and it's a, uh, it's really a great movie, but yeah, the Crested Butte crew, the, the pivotal thing with the Crested Butte development was the ride over Pearl pass. And that's a gnarly four by four road that gets up over 12,000 feet and you can ride it from Crested Butte to Aspen. And that's really what launched their uh, mountain bike development and continued improvement of mountain bikes in Crested Butte. After it had been going for a few years, Gary Fisher and company uh, even traveled out to Crested Butte to ride with the guys out there. And I was just looking up some info on their site in 2016, a couple years ago now, marked the 40th Pearl Pass Tour, which they're calling the oldest mountain bike event in the world. And they seems like they've got a pretty good claim to fame there. Yeah, that's really cool. So then the the third group that gets most of the credit with start, starting mountain biking, the story that most people know, is a group of riders known as the Larkspur Canyon Gang. And this is a group of riders in Marin, California, in like the 1970s that were modifying Schwinn, I guess, cruiser bikes is what you would call them, from the 30s and 40s. They were modifying these bikes so they could ride them off-road. They called the bikes clunkers, and that's clunker with a K. And they were racing the bikes. They were riding them off-road. They had a popular race known as the Repack Race down Mount Tam. And I came across a really interesting quote from the Marin Mountain Bike Museum. It said that the origins of mountain biking were totally innocent. The sport and the bike came into being not as some fattest vision of profit-oriented marketing types or from one single person, but rather as the evolving product of true cycling enthusiasts doing what they loved. I think that's really awesome. It's a really succinct way to put it together. You know, there were lots of people working with kind of the same goals in mind and, you know, they weren't trying to invent an industry or make a lot of money or anything like that. They were just looking for ways to have a good time. And I like being reminded of that, you know, especially working in the industry. Yeah. One thing I find really interesting is that we often credit uh, Gary Fisher with being like the godfather of mountain biking. But as we've sort of highlighted, like there are a lot of people doing similar things at the same time, but Gary Fisher sort of gets the fame because he was the one that was like, hey, we can 
build these bikes and sell them and make money doing it and really began to monetize it. But I think, you know, the quote that the Marin Museum puts up there is to sort of highlight like, hey, we started this because it was awesome. And then we started selling it because other people thought it was awesome too. And they wanted bikes. And so we gave them to them. So I think that's a kind of an interesting note on the roots of our sport. Right. I mean, as long as bicycles have existed, people have been riding them off road. Yeah. So, well, when they started too, there were no roads, right? You know? Like the bike came before the car. So people were mountain biking before cars existed. Yeah. One interesting thing that most motorists, maybe a cyclist would call them, most motorists don't <laughs> realize is that uh, paved roads came about primarily as a means to have a smoother surface to ride your bicycle on um, because they came about before cars were a thing. And it wasn't a big deal in a horse-drawn carriage to be on a really rough road, but on a bike, it was not super pleasant without suspension. Yeah. So wonder they didn't come up with suspension instead of trying to get the roads fixed. They didn't fix the bikes first, but <laughs> it seems like the easier route. <laughs> right. So another group, you know, again, in these early days, what's interesting is, you know, this wasn't that long ago. I mean, this was 30, 40 years ago, but there aren't, at least in my research, there aren't a lot of like really solid dates behind like when things were happening. And I guess, again, that speaks to the innocent roots of the sport that uh, that quote was referencing where people weren't like writing this stuff down because they're like, oh, this is going to be really important or like we're doing something new that's going to get huge, like. They were just doing it because it was fun. But again, sort of in the same time period, there was a group of riders known as the Laguna Rads in Southern California. And they were exploring the hills around Laguna Beach and, you know, riding into the hills and finding cool stuff that they could ride their bikes over. And this is actually credited with starting the free ride movement, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So even at the early stages, people were really experimenting and finding like different ways to use mountain bikes and different sort of niches within the sport. So mountain biking has been growing and branching ever since it was created uh, back in the 70s. So let's talk about some of the most common mountain bike offshoots that are around today, starting with cross-country mountain biking. What is cross-country mountain biking, Greg? So these days we mainly refer to XC or cross country mountain biking as primarily a race format. And this is just going as fast as possible, both up and down hills and where the entire race is usually timed. Usually it's like a lap style race. It could be pretty short laps and multiple laps, but there are various distances available. And I think these days, you know, back in the day we called XC, like a type of mountain biking, like it was maybe you went out to do XC style riding, but these days we mostly refer to it as a race type and not uh, as a type of riding necessarily because really isn't everything just trail riding? Trail to me seems like a bit better descriptor of a riding style, whereas XC might be more of a racing type. Yeah, I don't know. I I think they mean the same thing. I mean, they do now, but yeah, I could understand cross country too, because you're just a riding across whatever basically is in your path, which, you know, I like to think of mountain biking that way. What about the race format, Aaron? Can you tell us a little bit more about that, how it is set up generally? Uh, well, as Greg said, a, like a real traditional cross country race is going to have a, a fairly short course. I can't remember the exact um, limit, but like UCI races, I think it's the laps have to be around three kilometers at the longest. Um, so you're doing multiple laps and yeah, you're just pinning it the whole time. So 
the races are generally, you know, maybe two hours long at the longest, probably less than that. And you're just pinned the whole time going up and down. Yeah. And I feel like in the past, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, the people who dominated these races were, a lot of them were just road riders. You know, they race on the road and then they'd enter a cross country race every now and then and just do really well at it uh, because the courses were basically designed to just see how strong you are and how fast you are. But that's kind of changing lately, right? It's getting more sort of mountain bikey. Yeah, that was that's definitely a, a valid critique of what cross country racing used to be. But in the past, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just only been the past five or so years. You've really seen courses start to incorporate a lot more technical features and bike handling is now a much bigger component, you know, to being a, a well-rounded rider and being competitive. I mean, if you look at a rider, obviously like Nino Scherter, who's been absolutely dominant on the cross-country racing scene for several years now, he is an amazing bike handler. He's he's not just some roadie who's out there and just can ride harder than everyone. I mean, he crushes the technical sections like he's throwing tabletops over all the little jumps like he's he's just an he's got the whole package you know he's just an absolute monster in terms of fitness and in bike handling so i think that was the way courses used to be really buff really fast like you said it's just basically a dirt road race but that's definitely changed um at least at the the upper echelons of the sport yeah i think that's really cool to see too that you know, we are finally branching away, um, you know, even more completely from our origins in, you know, regular, well, I guess people would have called regular biking back then, which would have been road biking. And you see it in the way the cross country courses are changing. You know, you see it in the styles of like the clothing that mountain bikers wear, you know, in the, even in the 1990s, everybody was just wearing like tight shorts and, you know, form fitting jerseys, the same stuff they would ride on the road or wear on the road. But nowadays you're seeing people with like baggy shorts and, you know, mountain biking's got like its own style and its own identity that it's sort of developed over the years, which I think is cool. Well, I would say it was kind of taken from motocross and probably Sean Palmer deserves a lot of credit from that, from the early two thousands when he was the biggest name in mountain biking. He was, he came over from snowboarding and that had, you know, just a much different, like, kind of punk rock attitude compared to mountain biking at the time, which like you said, was all even downhill racers were wearing essentially like skin suits and right. Sean Palmer came in and he was like, nah, brah, like, <laughs> I ride motos. I'm not wearing this tight crap. Like I'm, I'm going to wear moto pants and a moto Jersey. And, uh, that definitely influenced the whole, the whole style of, of downhill riding and in turn free ride and kind of just now it's trickled down to trail ride too. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too that it took so long or it took, you know, one person to kind of re-establish that because you look at the pictures of like the Larkspur Canyon gang, those guys were wearing like jeans and flannels and all kinds of stuff that kind of come back to that. <laughs> exactly. But it seemed wildly inappropriate for biking and, you know, people got away from that for a minute, but now we're like, no, you know what? Like it's more comfortable, looks better, like. We're mountain bikers. We're yeah. Own it. If you're not riding 40 miles, then maybe you can get get by with wearing jeans. Yeah. Tight jeans, especially. <laughs> those those are good so they don't get caught on anything. Exactly. Kind of going back to XC racing, it's definitely not anywhere near as popular as it used to be back in the day, as they would say in the 
late 80s and all throughout the 90s, I mean, you don't really see a whole lot of true cross-country events on like a local level anymore. At least, I mean, I know you don't around here in the southeast. You see a lot more endurance events, particularly 24-hour races kind of had their heyday in the late 90s to mid-2000s, but even those have kind of tapered off in popularity. I think kind of the more six-hour events or like the 50 to 100-mile races are a lot more popular. I know that's the format I like to race. So I think 24-hour races, they're they're cool, but they're a huge undertaking, uh, even if you're racing on a team, like let alone solo. So I think people have just chosen to push themselves in different ways. Yeah, I think the guys that guys and girls that like to do the 24-hour races are probably some of the ones that are doing these like cross-country bikepacking races that we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Greg, talk a little bit about the trail characteristics for cross-country trails. Yeah, I think we touched on this a little bit in the sort of race format, how that's evolved over the years. But historically, we'd say, you know, they'd be pretty smooth and non-technical. So maybe there's big climbs and descents, but there aren't like big features or huge rock gardens or big drops, anything like that. You know, it's relatively uh, non-technical. But as we've said, if we're focusing on racing, the race courses have changed radically over the years. And now you'll see like big like ledge drops in the middle of an XC course and like huge rock gardens and some stuff. I'm like, shoot, I don't know if I'd ride that on any bike, man. <laughs> and then these people are just like airing their hardtails off of it. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Would you guys say like a flow trail, would that be considered a XC thing or something that's appropriate for XC or is that, I don't know, designed design for a different style or, or maybe just all bikes? I mean, I think, a gravity flow trail is, you know, trending more towards you know, downhill or trail riding. But that's why, like, I don't know if cross country is like an awesome descriptor anymore for just standard riding. Yeah, I wouldn't consider a cross country ride these days to be like going straight up a mountain and straight back down. It's more like going up and down and covering ground, you know. So where you guys are in Georgia, I'd see it more like if you're riding at fats, like that'd be very cross country. But if you're riding like. But isn't fats a flow trail? <laughs> it Ooh. is not a not according to Greg. Yeah, it's not according to Greg's definition of flow trails. No, I agree with you there. But uh, going straight up like a big mountain in North Georgia and then coming straight back down a super gnarly descent. I don't know if that would be a cross country ride, but it's a trail ride, so maybe we should stick with that. Yeah. So, what makes cross country bikes unique or different from bikes used for other mountain bike disciplines? Uh, you definitely want a lightweight bike, um, since you are going to be climbing a lot and those climbs are not of a length where you can really just settle in and kind of make your way to the top. You want the absolute lightest bike possible. And that means all the components on it need to be light. The, the tires need to be light. The wheels need to be light. Everything, your handlebars, minimum suspension. Generally speaking, you see a lot of just a hundred millimeters kind of considered cross-country bike so whether that's a, a hardtail you still see quite a few of those even at the top of the sport full suspensions would be 100 sometimes up to 120 in the front millimeters of suspension but yeah just really light bikes i mean if you look at a a world cup caliber bike a full suspension is going to be probably around the 20 pound mark you know, maybe 21, 22, depending on the size, but hardtails are probably more along the lines of 17 or 18 pounds. 
Yeah. And what about the gearing or the drivetrains on cross-country bikes? Are those similar to other bikes or are people putting more big gears on it? Because I feel like you do a lot more pedaling in XC than any of the other disciplines. Well, I mean, Nino Scherter's running SRAM Eagle drivetrain and kicking everybody's butt. Uh, he just runs a bigger chain ring. So still, mm. we, we still see a lot of one by drivetrains in cross country. And I would actually argue that, you know, cross country riders were some of the first to adopt one by drivetrains because they figured out if you shed a, your front derailleur, front shifter and a chain ring, all of a sudden your bike is a pound lighter. So I know, I mean, that's where, you know, that's how I, got into one by drivetrains was I was doing a lot of cross country and endurance racing at the time. And I just hated, you know, I hated, uh, miss shifts. I hated like any chain suck or anything like that. So I was like, you know what? I'm ditching this front derailleur. This is for the birds. So you, you still see, I mean, like trail riding now I think is dominated by one, one by drivetrains. You see that in cross country as well. Although there, there are a few people who run doubles just because, then you have, you know, you have more range, but especially you have that bigger chain ring. So you can really carry a lot of speed on the flatter sections. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking that the chain rings are at least bigger, you know, whether it's one or it's two, you're going to usually have a bigger chain ring on a cross country bike. So you can get that sort of top end. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're a really strong rider and you're on a hard tail, you know, you're probably running a 36 tooth chain ring on the front. Whereas with a, with a trail bike, you're probably more likely to be running a 32. Good info. So we're going to skip over trail riding cause we kind of talked about it and honestly we're skipping it cause I don't feel like it's that different. I mean, it's kind of like an in-between thing. Maybe you guys can argue that, but I don't feel like it's, I feel like it's just mountain biking. Yeah. Maybe that's the best way to it's put it. All, it's all mountain, it's all mountain biking. Yeah. Right. So it's not really distinct from anything else. It's just basically what most people think of when they think of mountain biking. So we're going to focus more on the distinct sort of different aspects of it. So skip right over trail and go to enduro or all mountain. So what is enduro and how's it different from all mountain, Aaron? So they're kind of, uh, they're, they're related, but they're not the same thing. So all mountain is kind of the term that's been around for longer. Um, and it just is riding your bike in big mountain terrain. It's climbing up to the top of a, a really big mountain and then ripping down the backside. Enduro is at least started as a race format. It's a, a race format that carries over from moto sports again. Um, so motorcycle, enduro motorcycles. Um, but the thing with the enduro race format is, only the downhill sections are timed. I know a lot of people probably know this, but you just time the descents. The climbs in between the descents are not timed. And then you have multiple stages. It could be a one-day enduro. It could be a multi-day. It could be a week long. And then the lowest combined time from all those uh, downhill stages is the winner. Yeah, and so the bikes still have to be designed so that they can climb, right? And the athletes too. I mean, you, you have to be... You have to be really fit to do this, even though you're only, you know, being timed on the downhills, right? Yeah, because if you think about it, you got to get up to the top of the mountain first of all. So you have to pedal. Um, I mean, right? You could push, but a lot. Some of them they have like cutoff times too. Right. right? Yeah. So just to get into like a little deeper on the rules, a lot of the races, especially if you're looking at 
you know, the Enduro World Series level or even, you know, regional or national level races, they're going to have time cut off. So while the the transfer stages, that's what it's called, the uh, sections in between the downhills, those are not timed, but there may be a time cutoff, right? So like maybe you have an hour and a half to make it to the top of the next stage. That doesn't count against you that time. You can use that whole hour and a half, but if you roll in an hour and 35, then you're not going to get a time for that stage. So yeah, it's, it's all, the, the riders are really, really fit in this, in this sport as, as particularly at the top level. Obviously many of them are former downhill racers. Um, some of them are former cross country racers. So you see a little bit of both in there coming from different directions and the bikes themselves, like you said, they have to be able to, to climb. Um, so there do need to be some considerations for that you obviously can't just take a downhill bike with you because uh while that may make you a little bit faster on the descents you're 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 gonna be hating yourself you're gonna be hating yourself (laughs) a lot of bikes in this uh enduro bikes are probably going to be in the 150 to 160 170 millimeter travel range we're seeing mostly 27.5s but um more and more new 29er enduro bikes are coming out all the time the geometry is a lot different than your cross-country bike so this is going to be slacker head tube angle much longer reach much longer wheelbase Uh, all the components are going to be much burlier so that's heavier duty forks and shocks and wheels and tires and just uh, you know heavier duty brakes bigger rotors because you know you you've got to go really fast downhill so you need can't do that on a cross-country bike you need something burlier yeah, I was going to ask too on the equipment. Do are there any other equipment rules? Like, is there to prevent people from doing downhill bikes? Do some races uh, not allow like dual crown forks, or am I just imagining that? No, I think you're just imagining that. Okay. I mean, that just seems like something that would hamper you personally. I think yeah. you can ride any bike you want, but you definitely have to make some some trade offs, right? Like, you may want a downhill tire, but that's going to be too heavy, so. You have to run like one step below a downhill tire and just pray that you don't get flats. <laughs> yeah. So the one interesting thing with the equipment selection in enduro is generally speaking, you have to use the same bike and same components the entire race. So you could run a downhill bike, but generally over the course of an enduro race, you'll have some more downhilly stages, but then you'll have some stages with some like 30 seconds, 60 second or longer depending on how fast you are, I guess, like riser climbs in the middle of them. So stages are more pedally. And so if you choose a downhill bike, you're going to have to ride that same bike, that same fork, same suspension across all the stages and usually same wheel set. Some people do swap tires depending on days, um, but exactly what series you're running uh, will dictate which components have to stay the same. Usually they'll put like a sticker on them and you'll have to prove that you're using the exact same component you started with. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So you can't, you know, maybe say one day is a little bit peddlier and you run like a 160 travel fork and it's lighter weight. And then the next day it's got bigger stages. You can't slap a 180 on there. I know that's how it is in the Enduro World Series for sure. Um, and I think if you do have to replace certain components that um, that you're supposed to keep, there is a time penalty, which you know, when you're racing for a matter of seconds, any time penalty is going to really put you back in the overall. Yeah. 
Yeah, so if you shatter a wheel, like you're pretty much screwed because you're taking that time. Not only are you screwed on the stage, you're taking time penalty for swapping a component because um, you need to use that same wheel set. So you got to weigh that those options. Yeah, so it's a yeah you got to got to make a uh, got to make good choices. Yeah, it's definitely um, it's like a game of chess. It kind of is. You know, you got to ride on the ride on the edge, but not over either. So yeah, yeah those and like Greg said, those. Uh, I've done a few enduro races and you know around here we don't have we don't have many descents that are just 100% down unfortunately you know there's going to be some little rises in there and let me tell you what when you are pinning it and you hit like a 30 second climb it feels like it feels <laughs> like a half hour climb it's like the most brutal thing to try to sprint up a hill when you're already <laughs> blasted yeah Let's take a step back from enduro racing and talk more generally about all mountain riding, which is essentially the same thing, same sort of level of, of riding and the same terrain. So what, what is that terrain like? How would you guys describe that? I would say it's characterized by technical sections, steep, high speed. Yeah, just like riding in big mountains. So I think of an all mountain ride being like getting out into the back country and grinding up a climb for an hour, maybe two, maybe three. If you're in Colorado, it might be an all day thing. And then just having an absolute ripping descent down the backside. So it's like you said, it's, it's enduro, but it's just not timed. The next type of mountain biking on our list downhill is not all mountain. It's part mountain and it's the part where you're going downhill. So Aaron, Tell us a little bit more about downhill mountain biking and how it's different from some of the other forms. I think the name is pretty self-explanatory, but it is, uh, it's a type of riding and it's also a race format. So it's kind of like the other ones on this list that we've mentioned. Um, you know, you can do a downhill race or you can go ride downhill and it's definitely characterized by the fact that you only ride down the mountain. You don't climb. Well, how would someone do that? How would you get to the top of a mountain? couple different ways um you can shuttle so you can do that with vehicles or uh, if you're at a resort you'll probably ride in a chairlift yes so let's talk about the equipment now what is the equipment like compared to say an enduro bike which is already a pretty aggressive bike but downhill bikes take it even farther right yeah so it's just another step up so even more travel um even longer slacker geometry the forks are going to be dual crown or triple clamp, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, these are going to have the burliest components, no provisions for climbing. Like you wouldn't be able to even get a seat post up high enough for it to be <laughs> pedalable up a hill. The seat post is going to be super slack. Yeah, so there's it's just meant for one thing. This is a highly specialized bike. And yet they still do have pedals and gearing and stuff too for those kind of flat sections we were talking about because you do need a pedal sometimes on a downhill bike, right? You got to pedal a lot on a downhill bike. Although we have seen Aaron Gwynn win a World Cup downhill race after he broke his chain. So <laughs> if you're really fast and you can pump the terrain and you're uh, one of the best downhill racers of all time, <laughs> then maybe you can get away with that. Yeah. What I always found interesting too is that mountain bikes, or sorry, downhill bikes use, a lot of times use a similar cassette to what you would find on like a road bike. Because the times that you do pedal, you're moving really fast and you need uh, sort of like a high gear to really get you across the course. 
Yeah, and I think one thing to think about with downhill enduro is that the w- people that still win these races, they're pedaling like most of the time when they're going down or they're going through flats. You know, when people are like, oh, you're riding downhill, you don't need a paddle. It's like that person's not winning any races over there, you know? Right. Yeah, when you are pedaling, you, yeah, you're at a really, really high gear moving you down the course. So, Greg, you had an interesting observation about downhill mountain biking about how it really ties to some of the earliest days of our sport, right? You know, when I think about, like, we're talking about different branches and styles of riding, I always think of XC as being the original OG mountain biking. But I think what's really interesting is that you could argue that downhill was really the OG of mountain biking uh, because the Mount Tam races were just races straight down the mountain. Like, there was... Not really any pedaling taking place. Maybe they pushed up and then you'd call that enduro. I don't know. You know, so we, but I guess XC kind of developed separately at the same time, possibly in Crested Butte or the UK. They had early XC races over there. So XC and DH really uh, rose separately at the same time almost. And somehow we call both of them mountain biking though. Well, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, the, downhill was kind of um the the genesis of mountain biking but it's also we should probably note that in the early days of the sport in the 90s and stuff there weren't xc and downhill bikes you just had a mountain bike right. and you went mountain biking you didn't really you know you would go do an xc race and you go do a downhill race but you would do that on the same exact bike yeah well and to me cross country is so similar to cyclocross i mean Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was really different at the time and now it's harder to see, but cyclocross was all about pedaling off-road and, you know, racing. And that's kind of my definition of of cross-country. Whereas downhill, that was something that seemed totally new and different on a bicycle, at least. Well, I would say kind of the the differentiator, what I would say between cyclocross and cross-country is in cross country you're actually going to be riding some trail hopefully some actual (laughs) single track whereas that's not really part of cyclocross partly because the rules mandate that the course has to be a minimum width at all times so single track isn't really conducive to uh, passing obviously since it's a single track Um, so that would that would be how i would separate the two yeah that's a good distinction there's also the obstacles. I always think the obstacles in cyclocross racing and generally, unless you're like a total badass, like you have to dismount to get over certain obstacles, whereas hopefully you don't have to do that in an XC race. Yeah. So another type of mountain biking that's sort of related to downhill, the equipment is oftentimes similar and uh, the terrain as well as free ride mountain biking. Aaron, what is free riding? It is riding really gnarly terrain, um, mostly natural. It could be sculpted terrain, but I think in the beginning days of free ride, there were, again, there were a lot of people coming over from snow sports who were riding these big mountain lines and just going, just riding things that there was no trail there, just making their own line down the mountain. That's what I think of when I think of free ride. It's kind of morphed today. You know, if you look at the Red Bull Rampage, that's an event that's been going on for I don't know what 10 or 12 or more years now. And that's really changed over the course of its history from being originally a very raw people just riding off cliffs and kind of hoping for the best to now 
you're seeing a lot of more manicured lines. These teams are out there building their lines and building landings and building lips for their jumps. It's kind of gotten back to a little bit more, I guess, the uh, original idea of the event because a few years ago there was a bunch of wooden ramps and really, really man-made features that were on course. And I think a lot of the riders, a lot of the true free ride type riders didn't thought that uh, detracted from the, you know, the essence of the event. Yeah, but a lot of people too do lump that kind of riding in underneath free ride and we call it slope style now. So is that kind of a good distinction that there's more like man-made features in slope style versus true free ride? Yeah, so if you think about it, slope style does fit under the umbrella of free ride, but I would say like for one thing slope style is more competition based right where there are free ride competitions but in general free ride is just about going out and like seeing how big you can go on a bike whereas slope style is much more about points and you know execution it's much more technical you're doing a lot more tricks not to say that you can't do tricks in free ride but slope style is probably more akin to like bmx in the level of like technicality that these riders are tricks that they're doing now is just in insane and that's not to say the jumps are that much smaller because the jumps that they use like it you know crankworks any of the crankworks events are gigantic but they are you know they're so precise and they're so manicured that riders when you're riding uh, slope style you're riding these very short travel we're talking 80 maybe less of 80 millimeters of rear travel or less 100 millimeter forks and they're they're very small, generally all twenty six inch wheels still, and yeah, they're just they're made for that one purpose. This isn't a bike you could go again. It's kind of like a, a downhill bike in the sense that you wouldn't take it on a trail ride. A lot of these are just custom one off models from brands. You see a couple, I think Trek and I don't know Special Specialized May. They offer like a slope style bike, but they don't offer even complete builds on them. You know, it's generally a frame only, and you have to build it up from there. Yeah, so you mentioned how slope-style bikes are different and, yeah, actually don't offer a lot of travel, but other free-ride bikes do offer a lot of travel, more similar to, like, a downhill bike, right? Yeah, basically, free-ride bikes are downhill bikes. Maybe a couple different changes in component choice or maybe suspension setup, but from, you know, visually, they're essentially the same. Can you free-ride uphill? I wouldn't try it. No, so don't need to pedal it. So pretty much a downhill bike. All right. Well, after the break, we're going to keep talking about new mountain bike styles, including bike packing and fat biking. So stay tuned. Are you ready for a big boost in your riding confidence? Learn everything from the fundamentals of mountain biking to advanced skills, including how to accelerate through corners, how to ride drops and steep transitions with ease, or finally learn how to jump. Events scheduled throughout the U.S. Use promo code SINGLETRACKS at checkout for 50% off any clinic, camp, or adventure. Check out RideLikeAninja.com to find an event near you. That's RideLikeAninja.com. And don't forget to use promo code SINGLETRACKS for 50% off. And we're back. So another form of mountain biking that seems to be getting more and more popular each year is bike packing. So... Greg, tell us a little bit about bike packing. What's sort of your definition of that? And how is it different from bike touring, which has been around for a very long time? So a basic definition of bike packing is like self-supported 
bike travel over long distances covering multiple days. So you stop along the way and camp and spend the night and get up and go again the next day. And you haul all of your gear with you. So I think that's a key part to bikepacking is the self-supported aspect. Whereas, you know, doing stage races or multi-day tours or people haul your gear, that's been around for a really long time. But the self-supported aspect is really come on strong and created a different sport really but back in the day bike touring was a big thing it still is a big thing rather and uh, but the big difference between bike touring and bike packing is that bike touring is generally on paved roads and on a road bike whereas bike packing we're primarily talking dirt gravel single track mountain biking stuff you know, I think dirt versus paved is probably the easiest definition, but I think it's really interesting that we're also sort of seeing bikepacking defined by the type of products that you use to actually haul your gear. So if you're out uh, riding around and you see a guy riding down dirt road and he's got drop bars, narrow tires, and he's got uh, pannier racks and panniers, you probably wouldn't say he's bikepacking. You'd probably say he's touring. But if he had like a frame bag and a big saddle bag and a handlebar roll instead of a rack, then maybe you'd say he's bikepacking. So uh, I think the bike bags, you know, they primarily rose as like a lightweight controlled means of hauling gear on a mountain bike because panniers are just really heavy and didn't work well for that. And they're wide. I mean, on single track, you can't you can't fit through really tight stuff with panniers. You can't use suspension with panniers. They don't hold your gear very well. Like they rattle around. Uh, which gave rise to bike bags, but bike packing probably wouldn't exist without those modern types of frame bags and saddle bags that we have today. So it's interesting to see both of those things going hand in hand, kind of. So you kind of mentioned uh, multi-day trips as being part of bike packing. There's also like a race aspect to it. And some people might call this, you know, these really, really long races. They might call it marathon as well, but we're talking about races like the tour divide and things like that. How is that? Is that bikepacking or is that kind of a separate thing or how, how do those two relate? It's kind of hard to say. Um, I think they are bikepacking in the sense that they're self-supported, but it's basically, uh, yeah, I don't know, self-supported <laughs> ultra marathon racing. Cause yeah, yeah. like you're, you are carrying all your stuff with you. Some of these, like you said, the tour divide, you're racing from Banff, Canada to Mexico. So you're going over mountains, you're going over single track, but you're also riding dirt and pavement as well. Yeah. There are people who are very competitive in it, obviously. I mean, like any, if you have two people riding bikes together, it's a race. So <laughs> there are very competitive people, but I think in general, even people who do it in a, compete in events like that are doing it just because they want to really test their own limits and not necessarily out there to beat anyone else. Yeah. And you see that too with the races themselves. You know, I, I can't think of any where there's like an actual prize or like, you know, a lot of fanfare for the winner. It's just kind of, it's all, uh, as far as I know, they're all really unofficial and are kind of underground, if you will. I don't know. They're not underground. I mean, people get sponsored for bikepacking and stuff these days, but yeah, it's definitely got a different kind of vibe to it than some of the other disciplines we mentioned. Yeah. I think a lot of that is just because how can you permit a race that runs from Canada to Mexico? You know, that's going to be, right. 
extremely difficult to do, actually just impossible, which is why they don't. So they just say there's no prize money, there's no entry fee, maybe there's like a suggested donation or something like that, which is basically like your wink, wink, nudge, nudge entry <laughs> fee. Right. But yeah, yeah, you, you, you can't pull permits to ride 2,500 miles. Yeah, and it's still a really small niche. I mean, especially when you talk about the races, you know, they're growing every year, but it's still, you know, just a handful of people who are competing in these because it is, it's really tough. It involves a lot of logistics and all that kind of stuff. So we touched a little bit on the bikes themselves and the bags. Let's talk a little bit more about that, about the equipment and how it's specialized for bikepacking as compared to trail riding. One of the cool things about bikepacking is, well, just like mountain biking, you can you can ride any bike anywhere, and you can bikepack on any bike with a little uh, ingenuity and some elbow grease. Uh, frame bags, a, a custom set of frame bags definitely makes things uh, easier and tidier on your bike, but there are pre-made frame bags you can get. But if you don't have that and you're interested in trying to just carry a big pack and get some bungee cords and or you know some toe straps and get uh, creative with finding ways to strap stuff onto the bike you currently have but there are now dedicated bike packing bikes if you will so they have a lot of provisions for carrying gear so this is going to be extra bosses on the frames to bolt on things like racks extra bottle cages stuff like that and we're even starting to see some frames that come with bosses for mounting frame bags which is pretty cool i think because then you can have a frame bag that is hard mounted to your frame and it's not uh it's not going to scratch up the paint with a bunch of velcro straps also we usually don't see very much suspension on these uh, bike packing bikes it's even really not all that common to see people bike packing on a full suspension bike usually we're talking hardtails maybe totally rigid you're seeing some interesting component choices for things like more hand positions and more ways to haul gear. If you have never seen a Jones bar before, go look it up. It's uh, pretty wild and almost impossible to explain on a podcast, but a Jones bar will have like a bunch of different hand positions and different ways to mount gear. And uh, we're also seeing lots of people running interesting drop bar setups on their bike packing bikes, even if it's a mountain bike. And we're even seeing brands like Salsa creating specific types of drop bars like their cow chipper and their wood chipper, which aren't anything like a road bike drop bar, but are different, provide more stability and interesting things like that that you wouldn't see on a standard mountain bike on a standard mountain bike ride. Yeah, generally you want a more upright position, so you'll see that a lot. You'll see um, either riser stems or people using a lot of spacers under their stem to get their bars up. But yeah, like, like Greg said, um, having a lot of hand positions is nice. And as someone who's done a few of these really long events, I can tell you that the, uh, the extra hand positions are, would, would be nice to have. I have not had them. I've just gone with a flat bar, but yeah, if there's a long paved section or maybe, um, or a long gravel section, like, it would be really nice to have some drops or even see some people putting essentially like aero bars like you'd see on a time trial bike off the front of their handlebars. And that allows them to really like hunker down when they want to hammer and cover a lot of miles across flat ground. But then you still have those really upright hand positions that are comfortable on the trail. Yeah, that's really cool to see how it's developing its own 
sort of set of gear and different solutions for pretty unique problems that mountain bikers that do other types of riding don't face. Another niche of mountain biking or one that maybe is kind of up for debate, but to me is separate is fat biking. So what do you guys think? Is fat biking its own thing or is it really just like cross country riding on snow? It's interesting to note when I was doing some research for this and I looked in the Wikipedia for information about mountain biking, uh, it listed, you know, most of these different disciplines that we're talking about today, but they didn't list fat biking at all. So Greg, what do you think? Is fat biking its own thing? Is it, I mean, is it even part of mountain biking? Is that what happened? Did Wikipedia like just say it's not mountain biking and it's its own thing? I think fat biking is an interesting one because it raises a broader, maybe meta level question that we've been dancing around this entire podcast. And that's how do you define a category within our sport? Or even how do you define a sport? Do you define it by the type of gear that you use to do that sport? Or do you define it by like the type of things you do when you're doing that sport? You know, I wrote an article recently about definition of mountain biking, trying to create a better one than Wikipedia, speaking of, uh, had on their site. But that's why I tried to move away from defining the sport by the gear and more towards the actions and the things that you're doing, which admittedly, that's a lot more like nebulous maybe because you can look at this bike and be like, well, this is a mountain bike and that's not. But then it starts to get murky when you talk about things like fat biking because you're not riding dirt, but you're definitely not on a road bike, but a fat bike you know, if it doesn't have tires of a certain width and it's not a fat bike, but then what if you've got a bike and it's normally a fat bike, but you put narrower tires on, it's not a fat bike anymore. So, you know, it gets, uh, it gets murky there. So generally speaking, when we talk about fat bikes, we talk about bikes that have tires that are generally most of the time 3.8 inches wide or wider up to 5.05 is I think the fattest right now. So that's, the most basic definition of a fat bike. But as an interesting anecdote, I just met a guy the other day and they had created a, a mountain bike advocacy group in the Flathead Valley, Montana, actually where I used to live. And back in the day, like 20 years ago, they called it like fat tire bike advocates or something. And they had to change the name to Flathead Mountain Bike Association or something like that because people were like, oh, you're just concerned with fat bikes on <laughs> snow trails. And they're like, no, we created this before fat bikes existed, but now nobody knows what we're talking about. So right. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, there's still all the like fat tire festivals and stuff. And even I get tripped up sometimes like, wait, is this a fat bike festival or we're just talking about mountain bikes in general? So yeah, you talked about how the equipment is different. What about the conditions too? I feel like Fat biking, you know, obviously you can ride fat bikes in conditions that you might not be able to ride in with another bike, or at least you couldn't ride in them and have fun. So what what are the conditions that fat bikes excel in, Greg? Generally, people think about fat biking in the snow. So the best snow conditions are actually not like deep powder, but groomed and packed snow, which could still be impossible to ride a normal mountain bike on. It's important to note that while you can ride in a couple inches of fresh snow, it's it's still physically impossible to like shred powder like you can on skis. Like you just can't do that on a fat bike. But packed snow conditions, yeah, totally can do that. And so I think people normally think of fat bikes for that because that's like how radically different they are from a normal mountain bike. But they're also useful in all kinds of loose conditions. 
Uh, sand is another good one. Whether you're in the desert or on the beach, you can ride a fat bike in a lot of types of sand. You can't ride a normal mountain bike in. Yeah, you raise a good point too because I was one of those. Before riding in snow, I just imagine you ride fat bike in anything. But really it's best for those conditions, like you said, where a normal skinnier tire bike would just like sink down and you know create a really deep rut that's hard to you know sustain over long periods of riding so basically you know even with sand like we're not talking about that like sugar sand you know at the edge of the beach where you know it's really hard to even walk in like you're going to have a hard time on a fat bike with that too but more of the sand where you might like sink in where it's kind of a little bit wet and a little bit but also a little firm, uh, that seems to be where fat bikes excel. Sure, sand actually isn't too tough. I think that it, the trick with sand is like it's it's a weird substance on a fat bike um, or on much anything because whereas snow, like you know, you can easily sink up it to your armpits in really fresh snow, but sand, you're never going to do that because it's like it'd be loose and moving around, but then it doesn't ever like sink very far down. It sort of like settles, so you can actually. What looks like really loose sand, you can fat bike in pretty well most of the time just because you're not going to sink like multiple feet into it. It can still be really – unless it's quicksand and then you're just screwed. Yeah. So uh, I feel like we've covered the main niches, but there are some other sort of potential splits or there are other types of riding that are tangentially related to mountain biking or maybe maybe as they gain more popularity – we will start to see them as sort of distinct things. So one of the first ones I wanted to ask about is gravel riding. Aaron, is that part of mountain biking or is it a road thing or is it its own thing? Like where do you, where do you put gravel riding? I kind of consider it its own category in between the two because it's, you're not riding on trail, but you're not riding on the pavement. While you can certainly hit up some trail and you can certainly rides and pavement as well. I think it's pretty much its own distinct thing. And I think that's why you're seeing like all these really big gravel events. But again, like you can ride gravel on any bike, right? Like you could go ride yeah, a gravel loop on your mountain bike. If you have some good enough tires and the gravel's not too crazy, you can ride gravel on your road bike, which is why I always like to ride kind of burly tires on my road bike, just because I might, I might want to hit some gravel or I might want to hit a little section of trail. Yeah. Who knows? But you are starting to see bikes that are developed specifically for riding on gravel. So pretty much they're just road bikes with extra clearance. So they're a little different from cyclocross bikes. They generally keep the lower bottom bracket that a road bike has. Cyclocross bikes tend to have a higher bottom bracket. But you'll have gravel bikes that have disc brakes, uh, a little more tire clearance, maybe a slightly longer wheelbase of slightly longer chain stays uh, just to make them comfortable because generally on gravel you're going to be riding over long distances so you're not going to need the lightest snappiest bike like you would if you're road racing especially like a crit or something like that where the the demands on the bike are a lot different yeah i agree but i think you know we could call it maybe a blend of the two possibly and maybe instead of creating such like harsh categories it's like these are all different shades of the same color of thing you know like in a rainbow like the colors sort of bleed one into the other and here we've sort of got road bleeding into gravel bleeding into mountain you know and how close it falls to road or how close it falls to mountain sort of depends on 
how and where you ride your gravel bike, you know, like Aaron was saying, you can easily like slay some flowy single track on a gravel bike or a road bike and some surprisingly technical four by four roads. So you know, maybe we need to leave some more of this up to the rider to creatively interpret their own routes and their own riding style and just to do sort of whatever the heck they want. You know, it's like sometimes we're like, this is what this thing is, but it's like, well, maybe it's all kinds of things like jumbled up together, you know? Yeah, that certainly makes it harder to sort of document this and talk about the history of things because, yeah, that is it's constantly branching out. And then, you know, it's not even clear, like what where the branches start and end too. they're kind of like you said, they bleed into each other, which is kind of it's, it's interesting, it makes it fun. What about mountain bike dirt jumping versus BMX there? Dirt jump is traditionally kind of lumped in with mountain biking because the equipment is somewhat similar. Uh, but how is it different from BMX riding, Aaron? Uh, mostly it comes down to the equipment. So traditionally BMX bikes have 20 inch wheels and dirt jump bikes have 26 inch wheels. And most dirt jumpers you'll see will have a suspension fork on the front, although they are run extremely firm and they're just there to take the the edge off. But when you're dirt jumping, obviously you're not hitting a lot of obstacles. There shouldn't be at least on a set of dirt jumps. Um, so it's really just to take the sting off the landing and you don't, you know, when you're sprinting in between jumps or into a line, you don't want to be wasting any of your energy with the fork squishing. So they run extremely high pressures. BMX bikes are completely rigid. The jumps can be a little bit different just because of the different wheel size. You Obviously you can take a BMX bike and ride some mountain bike dirt jumps and vice versa, but uh, just the design of the jumps, the geometry of them is a little bit different um, to like optimize around the larger wheel. Right. Well, one final type of mountain biking that perhaps is a new branch or maybe it's, again, a blend like gravel riding is electric mountain biking. So one interesting thing to note about electric mountain bikes is that they already are starting to have their own competitions and races, which to me seems to be sort of a defining characteristic of the other branches we mentioned. You know, there are fat bike races, there are downhill races and cross country and even bikepacking races. So is electric mountain biking, is that going to be its own niche within mountain biking? Where does it fall? I have to wonder, you know, is this a branch of mountain biking, a branch of motorcycle riding, or maybe a convergence of these two different branches into one? And one thing that uh, Aaron talked about a little bit is the moto influence on mountain biking. But what fascinates me is that dirt biking, like off-road motorcycling, existed before mountain biking ever did. So people took like motorcycles, you know, from the road off the road before we decided like, Hey, why don't we do that with a pedal bike? You know? So <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of like influence of motorcycling on mountain biking in many, many ways. So pretty much all of our, well, not all of our components, but a lot of like major leaps in componentry, things like suspension, disc brakes, all these were motorcycle things before they were mountain bike things. Yeah. And even within electric mountain bikes, if we're talking about the equipment, there are, you know, I guess, what you would consider to be like a cross country electric mountain bike, you know, which would be one without suspension or a, you know, at least a hardtail. And then they're all the way up to enduro style 
bikes that also happen to have an electric motor. So yeah, lots of lines being crossed and blurred there for sure. Even downhill, I got some dual crown ones and that could be rad, right? Like self, I mean, that's a pretty cool pitch though. You know, self shuttle. Yeah. We were talking about chairlifts and cars. What if you could run your own laps with your own E downhill uphill thing? Yeah. Make it a hybrid too. So it like gets all the energy from your descent and then it powers you back up to the top. That would be nice. Yeah. And then wear a a solar panel on your back. Yeah. Yeah. Helmet. (laughs) And then you could sell that energy back to the grid and make a profit. would be awesome. Pay for your new bike every year. (laughs) Cool. So if our listeners want to learn more about the history of mountain biking, uh, you can actually visit the Marin Museum of Bicycling in Marin, California, where they have some exhibits and information about the early days of the sport. It's also home to the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. And they have a website, too. If you can't visit, you can go to their website and read some articles about the early days and see photos and all kinds of stuff like that. There's also the movie Clunkers. That's Clunkers with a K. uh, That is sort of a documentary that goes over the history. And as Greg mentioned, there's a movie called Mountain Biking, The Untold British Story that you can look at. Greg, is that available online or people have to buy a DVD or something? Sorry, I don't honestly know off the top of my head. I actually watched it at the premiere in Scotland. I think it was a premiere. Uh, it was right after it launched. And so it was pretty interesting to get to to watch that film in Scotland, like with a bunch of people in the room had, who had been involved in the sport like 30 years before. Um, but it's out there. I think you can just run a search for it. You can find it some way. Yeah, very cool. And then finally, another film that Greg mentioned, The Rider and the Wolf. Talking about the disappearance of Mike Rust, who is one of the early pioneers in mountain biking around the Crested Butte area. But that movie also talks a lot about the origins of the sport there and what was going on uh, in the 70s in Crested Butte. So one final programming note, this will be Aaron's last podcast with us. No. We're very sad. What? Yes. However, he will be around and I'm sure he will be a guest Anytime he wants to be on the podcast, so thanks, guys. Yeah, my last uh, my last podcast episode as a uh, member of the Single Tracks team and a uh, co-host. Yes, but he's gonna be he's gonna be our tire expert and expert on a lot of other stuff too in the future. So thanks for joining us, Aaron. We're gonna miss you. Uh, I'll but, miss you guys too. Yeah, thanks for everything. All right, that's all we got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. <laughs>